Hey everybody, we're continuing in our series on Hesed and we're talking about how Ruth and Naomi react to their crisis. Have you ever been on a vacation that wasn't very vacation-y? So every year my wife and I go down to Outer Banks, North Carolina. It's kind of family tradition and we really love the beach. We love sitting out there, enjoying the sun, getting in the water, being able to relax. Well, a lot of that changed when we had kids. The relaxing part, like our relaxation had to change. And last year, we had a little bit of a breakthrough with our son, Eli. He's seven now. He was six when we went to the beach last year. And this was like the first year where he just loved it. Like he was in the water for hours on the boogie board, riding the waves, playing in the sand, just doing everything. And his little brother, Isaac, who was two at the time, was kind of getting a feel for it. So we're doing okay. So we went into a this vacation with a lot of anticipation. So here we are, six hours of driving. We get to the beach house. We unload all the stuff. And, and almost in unison, Joanne and I look at each other and go, let's go to the beach. And our kids, they, they pop their heads up and they say, yes, let's go. Now that actually didn't happen. They both looked at us and said, we don't want to go. We want to stay here and play. We want to explore the beach house. We want to just, we just want to hang out. We don't want to go down to the beach. And Joanne and I looked at each other. We're like, what do you mean? Like, do you not realize we just drove six hours to get here? Do you not realize like the money we spent to get this vacation for you? And they're like, no, we're good. We don't really want to go down to the beach. And so hour and a half of tears, of struggling, of arguing, trying to get them ready and geared up to go to the beach. We finally get there. You know, we, we got them lotioned up. We got all the toys. We got all the activities. We got all the, you know, the tent. You know, when you got a kid, a lot of stuff goes into it. It's not like just popping down the beach. It's a lot of work. So they load me up. They actually call me Pack Mule Parker. They load me up. We go down to the beach and we finally get there. Our kids are upset. You know, they still got red eyes. They've finally gotten over the tears. We put our toes in the water and we look up at this beautiful sea. And we see thousands of jellyfish. I'm just talking like, oh man, my blood is boiling. You know, Joanne is like, all right, we're done. Let's just go home. Let's call it quits. The boys don't want to be here. Our three-year-old Isaac has looked at us at least six times like, back home? Can we go back home? And we're like, Joanne's like done. She's defeated. And so I'm I'm looking at it at my situation. I'm like, no, we're going to have fun. Like, we're going to do this. And so what do I do? I get in the water. I'm like, I don't care if there's jellyfish. We're going to have fun. And I climb in that water just to prove a point. We're completely different people. Joanne and I are completely different people. Our reaction to that situation was completely different. That's Ruth and Naomi. They have faced a crisis and they are reacting completely different. So by way of review, Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, are in Bethlehem. In Hebrew, Bethlehem, it literally means the house of bread. And they've got two sons. The problem is, in Israel, in Bethlehem, there's no bread. So literally, there's no bread in the house of bread. And this story takes place in the time of Judges, which is characterized by this recurring phrase, Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So what does Naomi and Elimelech do? They hit a hard time. There's no bread in the house of bread. So what do they do? They do what's right in their own eyes. They flee. They go looking for bread. The problem is they go to kind of the most unlikely of places to find bread. They go to Moab. 
And we've been covering the history of the Moabites for the past couple of weeks. But why this is ironic is because there's no bread in the house of bread in Bethlehem. So they go to a people that does not give them bread. In Israel's history, Israel has come out of slavery in Egypt and they're wandering through the desert and they come to this land of Moab. And the people of Moab look at them with disdain and they say, we're not giving you anything. You're cut off. We're giving you no bread. So what does Naomi and Elimelech do hundreds of years later? They go to Moab for bread. It makes absolutely no sense. They find themselves in the least likely place, but it gets worse. Elimelech dies, and then Naomi's sons take up Moabite wives, which is just unheard of for Israel. Like, it's just not allowed. There's actually rules and laws written in Israel's constitution not to take Moabite wives, to have nothing to do with Moab, but they take wives. And then the situation gets worse. Naomi's two sons die. They're gone. And so Naomi is left with nothing. Can you think of another character in the Bible that has a similar story? He loses his land. He loses his sons. He loses his daughters. He loses his wife. He's stricken by God. Who is that? If you've been in church, you think of the person to Job. Like it's the, the stereotypical picture of suffering. But there's a huge difference between Job and Naomi. Job is a man in a patriarchal society. He has the opportunity to rebuild. He's got power. He's got something on his side. He's in his land. He, you know, he's, he's in his own tribe. He's got people around him. Naomi is now widowed. She's poor and she's a foreigner. As a female, she has no legal rights to land. She's got nothing. She's like Job on steroids. She is the female Job, but even worse, she's got nothing going for her. Job himself wrestles with his faith. He actually contends with God, claiming his innocence. And in the midst of his frustration with God, he says, God be blessed. The Lord can take and he can give away and all this stuff. And may the Lord's name be praised because of it. Naomi, nothing. Naomi is just, Flat out done with God. Let's read Ruth 1. Naomi comes back to Bethlehem after her husband and her two sons have died. She's bringing Ruth with her home to Bethlehem. And she says this, as the town of Bethlehem greets her, says, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Now, in Hebrew, Almighty is El Shaddai, which has this sense of God's all comprehensive power to control history. Basically, she's saying the God Almighty, the God who could have prevented all of this has dealt with me bitterly. She says, verse 21, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty, the one who could have prevented all of this has brought calamity upon me. Full stop, the end. She is done. She's just upset with God angry. She's had enough. There's no wrestling with her faith. There's no struggling to find what's best in God. She doesn't care anymore. She's apathetic. She's just given up. So what does she do now? Nothing.
All right, so let's look at Ruth's reaction. We're picking up in chapter two of Ruth now. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, take note of that, the Moabite makes a big point about that, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. Now, this seems innocent enough, uh, but... But there's a little bit more to this mother-in-law, daughter-in-law relationship here. A lot of scholars actually see this as a, you know, Naomi kind of resigning herself to say, just go out in the field. See, Ruth is in a very dangerous situation. She's a foreigner. She looks different and she sounds different. People have started to hear about this person from dreaded Moab. And she goes out into a field to glean behind a bunch of men who are hired on a daily or a weekly basis to provide income for the landowner. It's an incredibly risky situation. Basically, Naomi is sending Ruth out among the wolves. She's letting her go, saying, let it be what it is, because she just doesn't care anymore. Verse 3. So Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. Now, gleaners didn't really get a lot. So the people reaping or harvesting the field made money for their landowner by harvesting as much as they could. And since there was a law in Israel's books that you couldn't pick up what was dropped, the harvesters, the reapers, were very intentional about collecting everything they could. So gleaners who would come along behind and kind of pick up the scraps would maybe just have a handful. It'd just be a little bit. It'd be like enough for one person to kind of carry over to the next day, you know, just enough to fill their bellies for one night to go out and do it again the next day. It was incredibly hard to make ends meet. And Ruth happened to come to a part of the field belonging to Boaz. And that happened to come in Hebrew, Mikray, is very loaded theologically, as if it's not just coincidence, but it's like a, a God coincidence, like God is doing something in the background, even though it doesn't look like it. She happens to come to the field of Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. And about that same time, behold... Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, who is this young woman? Who is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Notice he says it twice. And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came. And she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Basically, this young worker who's overseeing all the workers said she's a foreigner and she's been here all day. Not only is she like not really supposed to be benefiting from the gleaning plan in Israel's history, but she's taken advantage of it. She's a foreigner taking advantage of what God has laid out for Israelites. It's He's almost begrudgingly allowing Ruth to glean in the field which may be why Boaz later on instructs his men not to molest her, not to harm her, because she's in great risk. See, Ruth is the most vulnerable in society. And yet, she's the one that proposes the plan. She's the one that proves her Hesed loyalty with action. See, loyalty isn't just about being beside somebody or walking alongside them and just being there. It's doing something that is life-giving to the individuals in the relationship. Ruth and Ruth 1 had this amazing statement, your people be my people, I'll go where you go, nothing will separate us. 
That means nothing if she doesn't follow it up with action. And that's what she's doing in Ruth 2. She is taking the action. Here's the reality about Hesed. It's much more about what you do than what you say. By definition, Hesed is life-giving loyalty. For Naomi, Ruth, the Moabite, doesn't just promise loyalty, she provides life. Here's what fascinates me about Ruth the Moabite. Not only is she the most vulnerable in society, she's actually the least likely to show Hesed. Seven out of 11 times she's referred to as a Moabite. She's only mentioned 11 times by name. In seven of those instances, she's labeled as a Moabite. The author is trying to alert us to something very important. He wants us to catch this. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how Hesed humanizes, how it gives us a way to connect with our enemy. It brings a name to our enemy. And, and what the author is doing here when he calls her a Moabite over and over again, he's referring to her as kind of those people. It's the ones we don't want to associate. They're, they're the ones we like the least. They're our enemies. They're the ones we disagree with. They're despicable people. It's those people. That's what a Moabite is. But the powerful thing about Hesed is that Hesed humanizes. It gives them a name, brings them into relationship, brings them into conversation. But there's something unique that I notice about Ruth that I absolutely love. Hesed not only humanizes our enemies, but for Ruth, she allows Hesed to humanize her. We got to catch that. She is a Moabite. She's carrying with her a history, a name. But she's not acting like a Moabite. Hesed is getting inside of her and transforming who she is. And all of a sudden, she allows that Hesed to creep into who she is and and it transforms what she does. That's what's powerful. There's something really neat that happens in Ruth's life. As she begins to extend Hesed to others, she receives Hesed from God. And she begins to extend Hesed to herself. I've heard a lot of people tell me how often it is, how, how a lot of times it's easy to extend love to others, but it's hard to love ourselves. Very difficult to get over some of those boundaries and barriers of how we view ourselves. But it can be easy to love others, but hard to love ourselves. That's what Hesed is. Ruth is extending Hesed to others. And in the process, she begins receiving Hesed. And it transforms who she is. This story teaches us that life-giving hesed requires radical honesty. People who forget their past are doomed to repeat it. We know this. I come from a family of addicts. I know that ignoring my history actually puts me at risk. When I forget where I've come from, that's actually when my past, my history, my flaws are most likely to slip in. Ruth does not forget who she was. Now, if you've ever struggled with an addiction or overcoming an addiction, you know that it's not about forgetting. Actually, there's great risk in ignoring our addiction, our past, our background. That's when we become most vulnerable. But when I'm radically honest with who I am and I confess my need to God, my need for him, my need for Hesed, then the evil in my past no longer determines my future. Hesed breaks the curse of our past character. It does away with it. 
It's no longer has its grips on us. It actually helps untangle the reputation and history of our family, of our past. But it takes radical honesty. Philippians 3 says something amazing. Paul writes this, and he's got his own complicated past. He's done some really bad stuff in his life. And he says this, Philippians 3, Not that I have already attained or am already perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold on to that which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brothers, I do not count myself to have apprehended it, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is he saying? He's he's saying, I'm forgetting the past. Now that seems pretty basic, but I just told you, forgetting the past is actually a problem. So I, I discovered this about a week ago as I was reading this verse and thinking about this message. We are in great trouble if we forget the past. Ruth is going to be in trouble if she forgets the past of the Moabites. Paul's writing here, this word for forget, epilathonomai in Greek, doesn't mean to have amnesia over it or ignore it. It actually means to stop caring for it, to stop nurturing it. One scholar puts a definition as to cast it into oblivion. It's something very intentional. We need to stop nurturing the things of our past, kind of lugging them along with us and caring for them as if they're they're part of our future identity. Instead, we need to have radical honesty and say, okay, this is who I am. This is where I've been. God, take me somewhere new. And that's what Ruth does. She latches hold of Hesed and it changes her future. Now, Ruth's reaction is radical in the fact that it conflicts with our natural response. She's been trained to do something different. Now, what I have here is a cup that symbolizes us. We got a lot of stuff going on inside of us, and we got two pieces of what I want to draw out. We've got this clear part in the bottom that represents God's breath inside of us. Genesis 2, God breathed his breath into us. There's some divine elements inside of us. Our ability to do hesed is in there. And then we've got this top part this kind of nasty, dirty, murky part, and that kind of gets tangled up with our desire to do hesed. And and it kind of twists or leads to half hesed. I'm always surprised how I can start out thinking I'm going to do something good for my wife. You know, I'm going to be like, oh man, I'm going to be a good husband. I'm going to, I'm going to do the dishes. I'm going to clean the house. I'm going to watch the kids. I'm going to give her a break. I'm going to be proactive. And I do it out of love that hesed kind of rises up and I'm I'm going to do this. I'm going to serve her and love her. And then like, as I'm doing it, I start to think, man, I really hope she appreciates this. And then it progresses, man, she better appreciate this. And then I begin wondering like, hmm, I wonder what I can get out of this. Like maybe she's realized all the stuff I've done and, and it's kind of got this goodness and this, this badness kind of tainting each other to where my hesed is no longer doing hesed. It comes out as a half hesed. It's a selfish mixture. And that's the reality that all of us are, is a selfish mixture. This what Jesus calls a sinful nature. It gets distorted. So how do we grow in hesed? So like Ruth, we can act with life-giving loyalty. Well, John 15, 5 says it. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit. 
but apart from me, you can do nothing. So as we actively follow Jesus, pursuing his life-giving hesed, he fills us with his spirit. And God's spirit begins to transform who we are inside and pushes out some of those things that get in the way of us doing hesed. We allow God to kind of come into our situation as he says in, in the Gospel of John, he is living water. And as we follow him, as we take those small acts that are against our nature, unlike the book of Judges, when we stop doing what is right in our own eyes, God begins to pour himself into us and purify those motives, purify our hesed. He fills us with his spirit, which renews us in shape of the image of the creator God. Ruth has radical honesty and takes radical action. She breaks from her past in pursuit of God's ways. Hosea 10, 12 says, Plant good seeds of righteousness, and you will harvest a crop of love. Plow up the hard ground of your heart, all the messiness inside this cup. For now is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and shower his righteousness upon you. Righteousness in Hosea refers to the actions that are in alignment with the nature and character of God and are performed through the power of God. Each time we partner with God, God who transforms us is at work. It is a great partnership. As he pours into us and we get to receive and extend that hesed to ourselves and allow him to pour into our lives, transforming who we are, that we experience true power, that we can begin to have radical honesty and take radical action. We become a vessel, as we allow God to work in our lives, of blessing that is prepared to bless others. But we have to do the things of God. We have to nurture the things of God. Because when we do that, when we sow those seeds of righteousness, doing what God has asked us to do, we reap a harvest, a crop of love. And Hosea in the Hebrew actually uses that word hesed there. When we nurture the things of God, when we do what is right in the eyes of God, when we are honest about our past and who we are, and we confess that to God and we invite him into our situation, then God begins to stir. And we begin to reap a harvest of hesed. The actions that we take the things that we choose to nurture make all the difference. They're not radical actions in terms of how great and big they are. They're radical actions in the sense that they break from our natural way of doing things and they choose God's way of doing things. Ruth said, she went, she came, she gleaned. Ruth's radical action was not falling into despair like Naomi. Her radical action was trusting God and stepping out into a field to glean. What is your radical action that God's calling you to? What do you need to do this week so you can harvest a crop of hesed? Let's pray. God, we ask that you would fill our cup with your spirit, with your life-giving water, that we can begin to reflect your hesed. Help us to overcome these half-hesed's to have radical honesty with who we are, and then to take a radical step of action to following you. Amen.